0: The History Channel original podcast. Formula One has taken America by storm because of a Netflix show. Drive to Survive premiered in 2019 and was immediately a huge hit. It's easy to see why. It's basically reality TV with high stakes, racers with huge egos, explosive political drama, and fast cars. But for a long time, Before Netflix put us behind the wheel, F1 couldn't figure out how to get Americans to care. And back in 2005, the sport came very, very close to losing its U.S. audience for good. It was just disastrous, really, for the
1: brand, for Formula One, for the sport in general, really. We we just sort of said to NASCAR, here you go, have your
0: market. We don't want it. (laughs) Today, the nightmare at the 2005 U.S. Grand Prix. F1 has a chance to cement its status in the States at one of motorsports' most iconic sites, Indianapolis. But just days before, disaster strikes. More than half the competing teams learn they might not be able to race at all. F1 has only two days to find a solution. And let's just say fans are not happy. It's a moment that will change the sports trajectory in the US forever. Sports history this week, June 19th, 2005. Formula One comes up short in the United States. I'm Kalen Jones. F1 has all the drama. You've got teams sponsored by the world's biggest car companies competing on scenic courses around the world, racing up to 230 miles an hour. Companies like Ferrari, Mercedes, and Renault spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year to develop the best cars. Prestige, huge prize money, the stakes make each season a roller coaster. 2005 is especially intense with new rules infighting, and, for the first time in years, new challengers at the top. It would have made for a wild season of Drive to Survive. You'd think American audience would eat it up. And the guy in charge of F1, Bernie Ecclestone, is trying to sell them on it. But it isn't going
1: well. He had great trouble finding races in America, people who were willing to do it, and they often lasted a year or two only. You know, he might find another city, but nobody
0: wanted to watch it. Joe Sayward is a longtime F1 journalist. Normally, a Grand Prix doesn't change its host site. But in the US, it's changed 10 times. In the mid-2000s, there's just no appetite for F1 in the States. There are no American drivers or manufacturers in the sport. The top American auto racing leagues, NASCAR and IndyCar, are dominant. Plus, it's just hard to watch F1 on TV, with races starting in vastly different time zones. Why was it important for F1 to figure out its way in the United States?
1: It's the world's biggest consumer market. You know, in terms of what people spend, it's, it's twice as big as anywhere else. If you're looking for some consumers, why wouldn't you be in the U.S. market?
0: The U.S. is the biggest economy in the world. In this year, 2005, F1 is hoping to carve out a piece of it. The Grand Prix is being held at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, home of the Indy 500, the crown jewel of U.S. racing. And it's the fifth straight year it's being held there. Some progress considering the sports history in the U.S. Hopefully, this course will last.
1: Indianapolis is a funny place. They call themselves the racing
0: capital of the world, I think, don't they? But it's kind of quiet town. John Howitt, president of the Toyota team, arrives in Indianapolis with high hopes.
3: It was a strong year for us. You know, we came to America looking to try to have a strong race.
0: But of course, they're not alone.
3: The F1 team's on to win, they're hungry to win. We go wherever we're told, if you like, and we make the absolute optimum to get the best result we possibly can.
0: On Friday, Howitt and the Toyota team are at Indianapolis Speedway for a practice session. The goal here is to optimize your vehicle for the best performance, figuring out how far a driver can push, and where in the course to do it. Indy Speedway's course is 2.6 miles long with 13 turns. Most of these turns are bunched together, up until the last few. The 13th and final turn at Indy Speedway is not a normal one. It's banked or raised on an angle, which is strange because it's the only banked corner on the F1 Grand Prix calendar. It's common in NASCAR, but for F1, most races are held on flat courses, It probably wasn't an ideal
3: circuit for F1, but the infield and the banking made it an interesting challenge for the engineers. The Friday morning session, we had no real issues. Friday afternoon, particularly for us at Toyota, it all started to fall apart.
0: Toyota's top driver, Rolf Schumacher, gets in the car for a practice run. And at the bank turn 13, his left rear tire blows out. Schumacher's car spins and smashes backwards into a sidewalk. He's alive, but clearly in pain.
3: Ralph got out of the car and sort of staggered over the pit roll, uh, quite shaken. Everybody was extremely relieved.
0: The governing body of F1, called the FIA, rules Schumacher out for Sunday on medical grounds. Was something wrong with his car? The tires?
3: So the first thing we did, uh, was start to look at the video footage to see what happened. Is it a driver mistake? And then the footage we saw from the Ralph accident clearly showed a tire deflation. And there was a vertical cut on the rear left tire. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a line about two inches long, completely opened. Wow. And so we understood immediately we had a serious problem uh, with tires.
0: For some reason, these tires cannot handle the course. They are ripping apart, causing drivers to lose control and potentially crash. This is a huge deal because it's not just the Toyota team at risk here. These are Michelin tires. They're one of the largest tire manufacturers in the world and the supplier for seven of the 10 teams expected to compete this weekend. A screw up like this is not a good look for the company. All of a sudden, the F1 teams are in a weird spot. Toyota, BMW, and Renault, teams that are trying to gain any tiny advantage against each other, they all have to band together. They all have the same defective tires on their cars. That leaves just three teams with functional tires, Ferrari, Minardi, and Jordan. Their tires are from Bridgestone. and Bridgestone and Michelin, they've been fighting their own battle within F1 racing. Each trying to gain an edge. Bridgestone knew what the problems were, so Bridgestone was uh, obviously in a better shape. This is Herbie Blash. At the time, he's the deputy race director of the FIA, F1's governing body. He told us that Bridgestone had brought better suited tires because they knew the Indy course had been repaved. We had raced at Indianapolis
4: before, but Indianapolis had repaved. The circuit, and they used something that was quite new. And I think we used to call it a diamond cutting. And so there's very small grooves cut in. Michelin turned up with tires with basically no experience, and they hadn't really done their homework.
0: Those seven Michelin teams need to figure out a way to keep their tires from bursting on the track. Otherwise, they won't be able to compete, and they'll embarrass the entire F1 sport in front of their American audience.
3: Everybody on the Michelin side was hugely conscious of we needed to provide a race for the American fans. We wanted to develop the American market. We realized it was a problem, and we were looking for solutions.
0: The race is two days away, on Sunday. On Friday night, John Howitt's Toyota team and the other six Michelin teams bunkered down in a boardroom. How would you describe what it looked like?
3: Just a standard meeting room. (laughs) Fairly standard meeting room where we could get enough people in.
0: They start batting around ideas. How about switching tires during the race? Nope. Can't do that thanks to a new rule specifically preventing that. What about shipping in new tires? Nope. One, new Michelin tires would need to be flown all the way from France. And two there's no guarantee they would be safe. Herbie Blash with the FIA. I believe
4: that there was some very heated discussions. Obviously, the Michelin guys didn't want to see the, the Bridgestone guys go off and take the prize.
0: But by Saturday morning, the Michelin teams realize they're out of options. The stakes are high. F1 wants to secure its foothold in America. And it's not much of a race if two-thirds of the field can't compete it is definitely in the entire sport's interest for the race to happen. One idea, just set a speed limit for the Michelin cars so their tires won't shred. There was even the solution, I think, the FIA put out of potentially having the drivers who were riding on Michelin tires go 20 to 30 miles slower.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. That, that was that, that. was what they insisted, basically. But the view was, hey, it's not, it's not really a race. Also, you know, cars coming behind could run in the back, and if somebody misjudges it, it's dangerous.
0: The race is tomorrow, and F1 fans in Indianapolis have no idea the race is in jeopardy. Everybody turned up. We had over 100,000 spectators. But the F1 journalist Joe Sayward, it's obvious the race will not go as planned. I was on the telephone to Paris,
1: talking to the head of communications of the FIA, saying, the, you've got to understand, this is a disaster about to happen.
0: Tony Dodgens is an F1 journalist and author. He can remember what it felt like the night before the race.
1: They were very much aware that they, the
5: kit was all there, the personnel was all there, everything was there to put a race on. The people were going to be there, so yeah, we've got to put something on, you know?
0: But at the 11th hour someone comes up with a new idea that could save them, if they can get the FIA to agree. It's called a chicane. So the chicane was the only thing that was gonna save it. The chicane is basically a series of bends or sharp turns. You can make one out of a stack of tires or cones. Rather than setting a speed limit, the chicane will slow down the Michelin cars naturally, The race might not count for those drivers, but at least it'll happen.
3: We then, as Michelin teams had quite a long discussion and we all agreed to race without points. So we said, look, we'll do this. We agree that we don't score points. So the Bridgestone teams get all the points, which they did anyway in the end. (laughs) And we're happy with
0: that. The race officials seem to be okay with it. The chief executive of the Formula One group even signs off.
3: We left the track on Saturday night expecting there to be a chicane fitted on Sunday morning.
0: Following 24 hours of frantic meetings, it seems like teams have found a solution just in time, with the race just hours away. Crisis averted, F1 can still put on a good show in front of this hugely important market. But as everyone will soon realize, the chaos is just starting.
6: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
0: It's Sunday morning, June 19th, 2005. Race day for F1's U.S. Grand Prix is here. The bleachers inside Indy Speedway are filling up with more than 100,000 fans. What are the fans like in comparison to other places where they hold F1 races?
5: There seems to be an awful lot of Ferrari fans. I mean, there there is all over the world. The crowd looks like a pool of
0: red with a bunch of Ferrari flags. After all, Ferrari is the winningest team in Formula One history. They're a popular team to love, like the Yankees or Patriots, F1 journalist Tony Dodgen's. The Americans they
5: like to cheer and yell and uh they like a show, don't they? You know? Yes. <laughs> you go to some European tracks and there's not as much razzmatazz and and there's not as much atmosphere and, and, and all of that.
0: Yes, that's the thing, like people being able to latch on to the personalities and the rivalries and stuff like that. Yeah. Americans, man, that that's that's kind of our jam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The race starts at 4 o'clock, still a few hours away. It seems like F1 will treat its American audience to a spectacle. But then, Toyota's John Howitt hears the news. You can forget it. you're not getting a chicane, it's not going to happen. The FIA, the governing body of F1, will not allow the use of a chicane, where Michelin teams take a different route around a barrier in order to preserve their tires. Despite the racing teams the F1 commissioner, and race officials, all okaying it.
3: Why can't we do this? It's very reasonable. We're not racing for points. We put on a great show for the Americans. It's a proper race.
0: Tony Dodgens remembers putting on a show is not the FIA's biggest concern.
5: For insurance reasons and all sorts of legal reasons, there's no way that chicane is going to be put in.
0: And Herbie Blash from the FIA told us, you can't just change a course at the last minute. The FIA even threatens to pull their support of the race if a chicane is put in. Some read this as management flexing their muscle. Typical politics, our way or the highway. Some teams that ride Michelin tires threaten to leave. If we don't get what we want, we're gonna
5: set up our own different championship and we don't need the FIA. And the FIA was say, well, okay, you go ahead and do that, but you won't have any FIA circuits to race on. That
0: was all kicking off in the background. Teams are now back in their meeting rooms. No one knows what's going to happen. It was pretty chaotic on the Sunday. All of a sudden, chaotic. The Michelin teams can't change the course with a chicane. So there are only two options left. They could race with the speed limit the FIA wants. Or the teams could just pull their cars out altogether.
3: But uh, I mean, in the end, uh, it's the decision of the team. If you want to race, it's your decision but you have to take the consequences.
0: It's four o'clock, race time. Fans have traveled from around the country to watch the best drivers in the world. Do you think the fans had any idea of what's going on?
3: (laughs) I doubt it, to be honest.
0: Even Herbie Blash and the FIA don't know which solution the Michelin teams are going to choose. I was in the race control.
4: So I'm just sitting there with all the monitors.
0: All 20 cars line up in their starting positions on the grid. Before a race begins, they have to run a formation lap, which is basically a warm-up. It's more than a practice lap, though. It sets up the start of a race. In F1 racing, when the formation lap finishes, teams will line up with their cars and officially begin the race. The formation lap moves forward as planned, but anything could happen. There's still a chance the Michelin teams could abandon the race. Joe Sayward. Coming into the last
1: corner, and it's like sort of, okay, well this is the moment. Are they gonna turn into the pit? And
0: of course the first two were being the Ferraris, they went on the normal way. The Ferrari cars, with their bridgestone tires, continue around the track. So do the Minardi and Jordan cars but everyone else went into the pits, and it was like sort of, uh-oh, oh Oh my gosh. Kirby Blash is on the radio with the FIA up in race control. Well, I'm not sure what's going on here. It was uh, a little bit of disbelief, but then, boy, it happened. All the Michelin teams have pulled off the track. 20 cars started on the grid. Only six are left. The course looks almost empty. It's completely bizarre. We then had
4: to run the race with six cars. We couldn't even think about, in all honesty, because these cars are still racing at their maximum speed, and
3: there really is a race going on.
1: I just didn't think anyone was dumb enough to do that, but they did.
3: It was a big decision not to race. Big, 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 big decision.
0: John Howitt says the Toyota squad and the other Michelin teams had exhausted every option. I think people did understand at the time of the race,
3: yes, we have an issue here of damaging the reputation of Formula One.
0: A regulation race unfolds with just three teams, six cars, taking lap after lap on a mostly empty course, a boring showcase on American soil. For F1 journalist, Joe Sayward, it's looking like there won't be much to write about at all.
1: But it didn't amount to a, a good show, did it? The only real hope we had was that the two Ferraris might collide with each other. And then we'd have a really good story because then somebody with absolutely no chance would have won the race. It wasn't a spectacle at all. It was just hopeless. All the fans were furious, and quite rightly so. You could see them you know, doing their thumbs down all, all through the grandstand. I've seen some crazy stuff various races around the world where the fans are unhappy but i don't think i've ever seen anything like that it was just it was just horrible
3: they were throwing beer cans on the track and they were booing and jeering and yeah it was a very uncomfortable when we drove out from the track we wondered if we were going to be dragged out of the car oh my goodness
5: imagine you've taken your son or your daughter to their first ever Grand Prix, they're massively excited and they're sitting there waiting to see their heroes and then they just pull into the pits. You know, you might have travelled hundreds of miles and and, and all the rest of that. And for me, that that had to trump the politics. We had to put a race on somehow.
4: Some of the people were very quick to coming up with signs. It looked as though, unfortunately, the signs mainly were against the FIA. FIA fiasco, of
0: FIA this, FIA that. Other signs read, F1 disappointed us, money back, U.S. gone pre. Herbie Blash with the FIA. And I remember going down to the Parc Fermi and wearing
4: my FIA shirt and the fans booing and hissing. And then fortunately, the Indianapolis police Uh, They were there, and they literally pointed the guns up at the spectators, and it was wow, wow, wow. The spectators were leaving in, in droves. If we'd known how bad it was going to be, no, the race would not have taken place.
0: After 73 laps and 89 minutes, Ferrari's Michael Schumacher takes the victory, his only one of the season.
3: I think it even for them was a hollow win, to be honest, to
0: some extent. Yeah, no, it makes sense because there was nobody there. Writers later called the 2005 U.S. Grand Prix a sham. The worst race in F1 history. Tony Dodgens.
5: We cannot go
0: there
5: to, you know, what is seen as as the mecca of, of, you know, American racing and put on a race with six cars. It just sucks.
1: Joe Sayward. Yes, they could have put a chicane in. Would it have saved the race? Yes, it probably would have done. Would it have been 100% safe? How do you know? You know, if you've got tire failures happening, I don't know what the answer is. I feel
0: like that's been the sentiment across the board with everyone we've talked to. Like, we probably could have done something different. There is no specific answer for what should have been done.
1: There were lots of post-mortems of what had all gone wrong and all the rest of it, but it didn't help the fact that we'd sort of set fire to ourselves in America.
0: The 2005 US Grand Prix is, you know, called the saddest day in F1 history, and it's considered one of the most controversial F1 races ever. What do you think?
4: Well, first of all, I I agree with everything you've said. Herbie Blash. So was a very, yeah, a very bad day. A very bad experience uh, for Formula
1: One. It was just disastrous, really, for the brand, for Formula One, for the sport in general. Really, we we just sort of said to NASCAR, "Here you go, have your
0: market. We don't want it." It's a worst-case scenario for F one. A year later, the U.S. Grand Prix sees attendance drop by half, even with Michelin buying refund tickets for twenty thousand disappointed fans. In two thousand seven. F1's contract in the US ends early in the Grand Prix is gone. I think if we hadn't have had the issue that we had, we could
4: have built on that and I'm sure that the contract would have continued, but the damage was done unfortunately.
1: That was our chance, all these people were there to see it. That was the big chance to build or begin to build a following and we just we just threw it away.
0: the Grand Prix won't return again to the US until 2012. And even then, it won't really gain a legitimate foothold with American viewers until seven years later, thanks in part to Netflix. So who do you think was actually at fault for what happened at the 2005 Grand Prix? Well, you can look at it however you
1: want to look at it, can't you? Because you can say it was Michelin's fault you can say that it's the FIA's fault. You can pretty much say everybody. But the fact is that everybody with their different perspectives combined to create a disaster. So I don't know who to blame. I think you just blame the whole of Formula One. Hopefully, we'll never do anything as stupid as that again. You never know. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1997, the WNBA debuts. 2010, two professional tennis players compete in Wimbledon in one match for more than 11 hours. It becomes known as the longest tennis match ever. If you want to get in touch, feel free to email us. At sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212 351 0410. Special thanks to our guests Herbie Blash, former deputy race director of the FIA, Tony Dodgins, F1 journalist, John Howitt, retired president of Toyota Motorsport Germany, Joe Sayward, F1 journalist. This episode was produced by Cooper McKim. Story edited by Julia Press and me, Kaylin Jones. And sound design by Isaac Lee. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks, Hazel May, and Jonah Buchanan. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.